All right, people, if you have listened to this podcast before, you know Art of the Trek is a great place to plan your backpacking trips. Our friends over at Art of the Trek are working hard to research and add things like campsites, trailheads, and scenic locations to their public map. The good news is that you can now add your own points of interest to the map and help your fellow adventurers plan their trips. That's pretty cool. If you have something like a favorite campsite, trailhead, or a scenic location that you'd like to share with others, please head over to artofthetrek.com, turn on some points of interest from the overlays menu, and select the orange plus sign at the bottom of your screen to help your fellow hikers plan the best trips possible. If you contribute at least a dozen or so of these, Art of the Trek is going to send you a free swag bag. That's pretty sweet. Welcome to Backcountry BSing number 62. Yeah, 62. 62 Boy, this is the one that we hyped. This I am very excited for this one. Andy and I, we spend a lot of time out in the woods. And we've heard some weird things. Uh, No, but um, just we've been been trying to get... uh, a, a subject matter expert on this yeah. for a little bit. Not just a bunch of people that go in the woods and be like, Oh, I hear yeah, stuff. We want, we want the science. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but bef- real quick before, before we get to our, our guests of honor, remember to rate us on the iTunes store. <laughs> I'm going to say it every week. Um, and then, so, uh, so somewhat little announcement. Um, we are probably in the next month or so, we are going to transition this podcast off of the Shill Brothers Outdoors podcast, and we are going to move it to its own YouTube channel. Yep. So it, it's become big enough now uh, that it, it ne- kind of needs its own home. So we are going to move the podcast. More to come on that, and yeah. obviously, um, you know, we'll we'll be doing a tons of heads up for where you can go. And uh, we're in the process of moving the whole backlog over, um, and that's you know in the process of happening. And when that becomes final, I'll let you all know. But we, we will have a dedicated backcountry BSing podcast channel. Right. Um, nothing else about the podcast, like literally nothing will change. It will just have its own sort of home. It'll allow us to do more fun stuff. With yeah, it. we might do some more fun things with it, um, but it, it's gotten big enough to the point where it, it kind of needs its own home. Yep. Um, and we don't want to just be spamming our main channel with just podcast stuff all yeah, the time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, more to come on that. Uh, like I said, I, I'll we'll do more of a f- official announcement. We haven't really talked about it, um, but we will be li- kind of lift, lifting and shifting, yeah. kind of a corporate word over to the Backcountry Biasing channel. So, I think that's my only announcement. That was a good announcement. That was a good announcement. All right. So we are talking to the good doctor, as I'm calling him in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> we are talking to Doctor Jeffrey Meldrum from Idaho State University, and he is. Um, you know, if, if you try and basically research anything that's like scientifically grounded in Sasquatch or Bigfoot, yeah, he comes up. Oh, so yeah. I was uh, very, very happy that you agreed to talk to us. Yeah, that's um, that, that we <clears throat> certainly appreciate it. I, yeah. I didn't expect that. You've talked to a lot of people about this, and I was like, well, let's give it a shot and talk to him. And, you know, I'm sure our audience will be interested. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but so before I start letting you talk, I do... First off, I should give a little bio. He's a full professor at Idaho State University, professor of anthropology and anatomy, correct? I got that right? Okay. At Idaho State. Um, And you've been effectively researching this since the 90s, right? Yeah, 96. Just talking earlier today. Yeah, it's 25 years. Wow. Wow. So I want to actually 
Can you talk a little bit before we just jump right into it? Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this? I mean, like, did you grow up sure. like wanting to do this? Like, sure. how did you get to this? Yeah, I hope it's not redundant for your listeners. I hope this is no, 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 no. no, no. no. You're the most yeah. educated person that we've but, had on this. Because I get obviously this is the typical lead-in question. Oh, that, yes, uh, comes to mind. Um, I I was intrigued by this topic from uh, an early age. The first I heard of Bigfoot was back in 1968, just just in, in the wake of Roger and and uh, Patterson and Bob Gimlin actually mm-hmm. capturing that yeah that the notorious. <clears throat> 60 seconds of film footage and they uh when after they had shown it to a couple of scientific panels one in british columbia and one at the smithsonian they went on the public circuit and i won if not the first one of their first stops was spokane washington and uh i was uh, you know the kids at school were a buzz about the advertisement that came out in that morning's paper and um, a couple of them had even seen some of the coverage in uh, Reader's Digest. I think it picked up the story from from Argosy. Anyway, uh, that was my first introduction. And so, you know, uh, it, it just really embodied so many things that I found fascinating, human evolution and cavemen and, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, primates, uh, monkeys, you know, and apes and King Kong and you name it, uh, things like that. So, uh, plus all just the fascination. I mean, uh, the film, if you were producing a film like that, you couldn't have, have really captured <laughs> in any better right. way the feeling of actually being there yeah. in the forest, in that fall uh, foliage and, and uh, you know, on that sandbar uh, on horseback to see this thing um, stride across that sandbar and disappear into the distance. And so... So one thing led to another, and, and so I had a very youthful interest. I, I was a, you know, an obsessive collector of newspaper clippings and magazine articles, and there weren't many books on the topic at that time. There was uh, Roger Patterson's book, which I acquired shortly after the seeing the film, and and uh, then uh, discovered John Green's On the Track of the Sasquatch. It turns out that John Green's niece was my librarian. Oh no way. <laughs> Ah. We discovered that years later when I gave my first presentation in Harrison Hot Springs and spent the weekend as the guest uh, uh, with uh, with the Greens. And, uh, yeah, that was funny. But, uh, you know, I, I did a sixth grade report on Bigfoot oh, and no so way. on. And that, that <laughs> no way. That whole interest waxed and waned over the years. But eventually, you know, all those interests that were embodied in, in that topic and in that creature walking across the film – sort of guided my um, my path, the educational path, and I ended up pursuing a degree in anatomical science with an emphasis in physical anthropology, specializing in adaptations for bipedalism. So I was in a rather um, uh, singular position, given my interests and given the yeah, training that yeah, I had received. Yeah. And um, uh, so that when I came up face-to-face with a set of 15 inch tracks in southeastern Washington, um, it, it, you know, really uh, blew my mind. I mean, by that time, I I was really quite sober about the topic. I was objective. I was quite critical Mm -hmm. uh, of a lot of the evidence and a lot of the claims that were out there. And, um, uh, you know, you have have to ask Matt Moneymaker, my, some of my, as I kind of got pulled back into this topic, you know, and was 
online. I Matt and I sparred a lot because I took exception to some of his claims. <laughs> I still do, actually. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was uh, I was very skeptical, very very, um, but open minded. I right. mean, I was intrigued, and, and the evidence spoke for itself. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm sitting there, kind of pinching myself. Uh, it was actually Paul Freeman, who may be known to some of your viewers for all of the um, involvement he had over the years. But it was Paul Freeman that, that actually took me out and showed me these tracks, which he had found that very morning. Wow. And wow. Uh, I'm kneeling there looking at all the signs of animation, the tension cracks, the pressure ridges, the slide ends, the toe curl and splay in other instances. And and so forth, and even even dermatoglyphics, even skin ridge detail in this fine, silty mud. And I'm pinching myself, thinking, "How did he do this?" I mean, that was yeah, still the rap, yeah. that was the first thought yeah. that came to me. How did he pull this off? How did he make these so? And the more I looked, you know, and 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 then he, Paul, literally read read the whole scene backwards. He had it totally misinterpreted what had transpired. We, my brother and I, went back after taking Paul home and. We went back and very carefully marked out each footprint and recreated what had happened. And Paul had it absolutely backwards from, you know, you know as far as where it came from, where it, where it disappeared and where the tracks, you know, were no longer evident. So, and, yeah, I, I'm just curious. So, so you, yeah. first off, uh, it's very rare to talk to someone who's currently doing like what their childhood passion was. So I yeah. think, I think that's very yes. cool. Yes. Um, yeah. I think that's very cool. So, you know, you, you were kind of, you, you saw this as a youth and it, it really kind of charged you. And then you got into graduate school. Just as someone who was in grad, grad school, <clears throat> was your advisor like, this dude wants to study Bigfoot? Or like, how did, like, how did you, did that guide you? Like, did you it find was, someone? It was quite latent at that time period, through that period. Very, very dormant. It was only when I, after I had come, I, I landed this position at, at uh, Idaho State University, got closer to my roots back in the in the Rocky Mountains in the Pacific Northwest, um, that I was that an opportunity opened itself to uh, look into this question. It yeah. first came okay. through the International the uh, International Society of Cryptozoology, which is now unfortunately defunct, but uh, was run at the time by Richard Greenwell, and he reached out to me. I actually reached out to him. And I was uh, I was pursuing one of the things that had distracted me from hominin bipedalism was uh, the opportunity to study the locomotor adaptations of of uh, New World fossil primates, mm. platyrines, and uh, and so I had the chance to go down to Colombia and Argentina and actually dig fossils and and identify new species, you know, uh, for the first time and so forth. Really fun, but I was following up on a report of, of, a, of these giant uh, uh, primates in South America, Loisazate, and, um, you know, the uh, Mano Grande. And, uh, and uh, they're, they're too long to tell the whole backstory on that. But, but that had prompted me to get in touch with Richard Greenwell, who had uh, published an interesting article in his journal written by some explorers, some, some adventurers, if you will, that went down in pursuit of this story. I was after the, the photograph. Anyway, a couple months later, Richard calls me up and said, hey, we've got a piece of video evidence of Bigfoot, uh, alleged evidence from uh, Northern California. Would you be interested to evaluate it? I thought, hey, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, literally at that point, the interest was, 
was dormant yeah, enough yeah. And, and, and actually my skepticism because so much time had elapsed, you know, over the years with nothing apparently resolved. And my, uh, you know, I didn't know a lot of the backstory to a lot of this evidence, which I now am quite intimately familiar with. But uh, so I thought, ah, hey, it'll be a fun exercise. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll apply my skills and I'll point out the obvious zipper. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that right. Literally, my approach, and the more I looked, uh, I failed. I could not see a zipper, and I started noticing interesting little details, like the way the foot flexed across the midfoot. The mid, you know, first my first inkling of a mid tarsal break in the Sasquatch foot. There was some uh, some people had a real heyday with this, but there was what appeared to be a, a genital display. A primate-like genital display. This creature, this apparently, if if we can assume this was real for the moment, was was quite taken aback mm-hmm. by the approach of this of this well lit um, RV. I mean, you can imagine it, it'd be like <laughs> it'd be like a UFO landing on the highway. You know, yeah. you'd be rather <clears throat> uh, rather terrified. And in response, this uh, creature had an erection. But it wasn't a human. It, wow. was, it wasn't a human-looking erection. <laughs> I am not familiar with this piece of yeah, evidence. I haven't seen this video. I know. Yeah, well, this is the Sex and the Sasquatch. Episode. Yeah, that's what they call it. But, uh, but, I, but I'm telling you, I mean, to be to yeah. be uh, matter of fact, went up to the bookshelf and pulled down a volume of Jane Goodall's Chimpanzees of the Gombe. Just flipped a few pages, and there was a chimpanzee displaying to another chimpanzee. You know a dominant display and uh, it was identical to what was on the video now what was what were the chances of uh, some somebody in a costume or somebody creating the costume uh, mimicking something like that right you know be audacious enough to incorporate that anatomical detail but to get it just right for a non-human primate right so that was intriguing anyway that set the ball kind of kind of rolling i can't remember now what you're oh i I was my question was like how from an academic standpoint like how did you get into into this and i I didn't think we get to bigfoot's dick this early (laughs) in the podcast but that's okay um i have a i have a question though so like in your book it's often referred to as sasquatch and then bigfoot's thrown around too is 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 there a more acceptable term do you is sasquatch more acceptable than bigfoot it, it just depends on who you're talking okay. to. I, I, uh, Bigfoot has become so tainted, if you will, or uh, tied to the tabloid yeah. that, especially in my circles, um, you know, early on, I, I tried to cultivate the use of the word Sasquatch because it was more, it was more uh, acknowledging of the Native American tradition. That was really mm-hmm. kind of more descriptive in a way. I right. Mean, it, uh, you know, the wild man of the woods, mm-hmm. that's a theme that carries all around the globe. And uh, now I, I, tr- I use quite frequently the words or the term relic hominoid. I can talk to my colleagues about the prospect of the survival of some of the lineages on this very bushy hominoid tree or hominin tree, to be more specific. Um, but if I, if I say Sasquatch, <laughs> then or bigfoot then it's like oh no (laughs) and and you uh, you bring up something i wanted to to talk to you about um how much has the 
sensationalism of Bigfoot like hampered your ability to put forth actual scientific evidence? I mean, has that oh, has a it, lot? Has it, has a that hurt I mean, a lot? It's, it's a it's a stigma that you know basically in the, in the '60s when 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 Roger presented his film. I mean, that was the first time that that uh, you know a, a, a convention of scientific individuals with credentials viewed some evidence like this and, and when they dropped it like a hot potato and and there are reasons for that mm-hmm. i mean in in my opinion in my opinion um there there are some uh contextual reasons why the science of that day could not accommodate the anthropological science okay uh, very narrow could not accommodate the prospect of another bipedal hominid there was no, there was no space for it. I mean, uh, at that time, anthropology, um, and I'm getting off track, but at that time, anthropology was um, uh, laboring under an erroneous paradigm that uh, of, of one species per one niche, mm-hmm. and and that rule holds as long as you understand the niche. But the anthropologists had painted the the hominin niche so narrowly that they could only accommodate one at any time. So evolution, human evolution was seen as this single file march, one species being succeeded by a more derived or more adapted species and so forth, but, but never multiple. And it was, uh, it was only in the seventies that as the fossil record began to grow, that uh, there was a recognition that, Hey, there were, there was more than one species at a given time. It wasn't a, a lodge pole pine. It was a bushy bush. Yeah lots of branches i remember uh so, I, I read the book sapiens and they talk a lot about that and that yeah. was something that it's insane to think about not to get off a of bigfoot but the fact that there were different i mean i guess you could call them different species of hominids at the same time uh well it, it's very pertinent to the subject of bigfoot yeah. because that's the point is is back then see they looked at the patterson gimlin film and they go i mean they weren't evaluating it objectively right in their minds it couldn't exist yeah Therefore, what what can we point to to uh, illustrate that this is a hoax? And so you got these really silly remarks, silly, you know, since we got the male genitalia, let's go to the female. <laughs> you know, there was this ridiculous remark about the breasts. One one of these uh, anthropologists said, you know, all primate breasts are free of hair. And yet here we've got this. Uh, yeah. Not only were, were these hoaxers audacious enough to put breasts on it but they put hair on the breasts well th- this is embarrassing to the, not only to the discipline but to the gender yeah right uh, yeah. Our gender because you know all you have to do is recognize if there's a goose bump you know there's if there's a goose bump that means there's a little erector pili muscle the yeah. little muscle attached to the base of a hair shaft so fine as it might be you know doesn't take uh, much experience in the in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To to recognize that that humans and and other primates do have hair, right? Yeah, yeah, in their breast. So remarks like that were just inane. And then you know, someone says, "Well, look, it it's a female. Uh, it, it is portraying a female with the presence of the breasts, but it walks like a man." 
Well, why does it walk like a man? Because human females walk differently than human males because they have they give birth to big brained babies that require a large birth canal, yeah. which moves the hips apart so that when they walk, there's a greater tilt to the pelvis with each step. Okay, there's a simple biomechanical explanation for that. And of course, you know, uh, you know the uh, Marilyn Monroe's or whoever uh, they they exaggerate that as a as a sexual signal of distinction of gender. But if this creature has a small cranial capacity, this species, I should say, to be quite clear, has has an adult brain that is on the order of, say, a gorilla, they don't have the obstetric constraints of the pelvis. And so the male and female pelvis are more similar in size. Her, ergo, it walks like a man, a male. That's so interesting. Yeah, I didn't... Those kinds, see, that just points yeah. out that those kinds of statements are just, in in hindsight, are not only inane, but they're, like I said, they're embarrassing to the discipline that these were the experts of the time, and they make comments like that, you know? And so now we have to ask, why haven't we discovered some more persistent branches mm. on this bushy hominin tree? And in the face of so much evidence to suggest there's Sasquatch, there's a, maybe a Yeti, there's a, maybe a, a Neanderthal-like Russian almas. Maybe there's a little Australopithecine called the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis. Yeah, 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 yeah. So talk about that. So maybe. there's all these possibilities, and so to say they can't exist, anyone who says that now is just simply ignorant. Yeah. I mean, put it, put it as plain as you can. They don't understand the science. Now it comes down to the possibility, uh, not the possibility, the probability. What's the probability that such creatures have avoided our acknowledgement all these, you know, millennia? And uh, and then that's where then you weigh the evidence. But you acknowledge that there could be evidence. See, this is the thing. You know, we had Michael Shermer. Uh, oh, I nice. Skeptics come to campus. Yeah. He's a big he skeptic. Spoke. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had a chance to visit with him on one of the occasions. But, you know, I mean, just to show how, you know, if we talk about lack of a of, of background knowledge yeah. he here's he he's coming to he wasn't talking about bigfoot he was coming to talk about about uh, critical thinking and skepticism but of course the favorite punching bag the straw man yeah is, yeah yeah and especially on, on this campus um he had never read my book <laughs> he even had the courtesy to listen to my book yeah. before the interview you know he hadn't now, I did. And not, again, there you not, go. You're better than Michael Shermer. Yeah. <laughs> not bragging about my book, but if you were going to be informed on the topic, mm -hmm. don't you think that you should have read the only book written by a bona fide anthropologist, anatomist on the subject? Yeah. You know, I would think so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, so I, what's, what, what's his mantra? Yeah. Science starts when you have a body. Mm. That's, That's what the is, most unscientific. Yeah. What um I, w I was I, I was I was very surprised by the book and I liked I really liked the way that you approached it by like we, first we should say the link to the book is in the description yeah, right now yeah um Thanks. so yeah I mean yeah check it out check it out if you're interested in this stuff and it, it is a scientific approach to this subject yeah which we love I, I I really like how like almost you know your your chapters focused on certain topics and then you would explain you would explain like I don't know like the I don't want to say you would explain what it is and then then go into great detail about why this could be plausible and what type of like science is out there to support this these claims and i like some of that stuff i i 
I've never even considered ever. What what is what is like if I had to say so here's here's my approach to this. <clears throat> I'm I'm open to anything, right? Yeah, me and too. I I was a scientist for 10 years and that's why I was drawn to you because you're an actual scientist. Um and and like the sensationalism has definitely done something to, like for instance if 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 none of this, if none of this Bigfoot stuff or Yeti stuff ever existed and like five years from now, you know, your lab was like, hey, we found like remnants of this species of hominid that existed at some point. We just never found it. I'd be like, that makes total sense. Like yeah, that, that makes sense that that could happen. Yeah. But there's like so much sensationalism that now it's like, it's, it's like, oh man, like there's a lot of crazies. But to you, like what is, to someone like me, like what is, what is the biggest, the best piece of evidence that you got That's the footprints. I mean, I mean, is there anything other than footprints? Well, well, not 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 to trivialize footprints because because that was right. going to be a right. answer. Obviously, is is and and granted, I'm certainly biased. I mean, that's my expertise, yeah. and I and I see things. I appreciate the significance of that evidence more so maybe than someone less initiated. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think the the presence of hair that we can't attribute to other forms of wildlife. I mean, there's only, there, there are, uh, pr primates have a distinctive type of hair. Um, most fur-bearing mammals, not all, but most fur-bearing mammals, fur is differentiated because it has uh, guard hairs, the stiffer, longer guard yeah. hairs that provide mechanical sort of protection. And then it has the finer under fur that provides uh, insulative quality. Um, but primates have just a modified type of guard hair, uh, just like, you know, our body hair. Chimpanzee uh, has essentially not much more hair per unit of area of skin than we do. It's just longer and, and a bit slightly coarser. Um, but uh, so that that's an important piece of evidence. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the unfortunately, the, the uh, photographic evidence is a real grab bag of... Uh, yeah. In in the quality and quantity, uh, the Patterson Gimlin film set the bar so high, and uh, um, out of reach of, of unfortunately every other approximation. I mean, there's a few that are, are intriguing as well. I, in my book, I we we focused the uh, uh, documentary focused on the Freeman footage and the uh, Memorial Day footage, which is less. Freeman footage is is actually quite intriguing. Um, and it's backed up just as the Patterson film is. It's corroborated with footprint evidence. Yeah, Patterson, um, they actually got a couple of frames that had that had uh, footprints in the film, and then of course he uh, cast a right and a left at the site, and then other other witnesses came. Bob Titmus came and cast ten in succession, regardless of their quality, which made a very interesting and informative sampling of. Um, of the footprint evidence there. If all I had were the footprints from the Patterson Gimlin film site, I would be quite confident in its yeah. authenticity, but having both being able to see the foot that actually left the track yeah. and see the yeah. dynamic, the kinematic of the, how that uh, transpired just uh, nails it. But likewise, see the Patterson or the uh, Freeman footage when Freeman first arrives uh, at the site, where he'd been tipped off that someone else had seen footprints. He filmed some of the tracks in the dust and this individual that left those, those about 15 inch tracks had a very distinctive 
toe configuration. The second and third toe were a bit longer than the first and the, and the fourth and, uh, and nearly equal in length with one another. In humans, we call that a Morton's toe. And it only occurs in about you know, a couple percent of the population. It's not uncommon to have a second toe longer than the first toe, but to have, but usually then there's a step, yeah. step gradient. Well, that's a fairly distinctive trait. And the tracks I had seen in 1996 exhibited that trait. In fact, what you see on the patterns on the, oh, sorry, I keep saying it, on the Freeman footage may be the individual left the tracks that I witnessed in 1996. Oh, interesting. So when that's similar, when you, when you that, look at, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and that's the one disadvantage of listening to the book. Yeah. Yeah. That there's true. like 150 that's figures. True. I know. I'm a very visual teacher and <laughs> learner. True. So, I, it, so you it, don't get the benefit. I, of all of that's the true. You couldn't just there's read a, it. No, no, no. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying that there's a figure in the book that shows a juxtaposition of the, of the, yeah. these casts that show that individual is almost certainly the one in the, in the film. I have a question though. Hold on. I have a question too. <laughs> okay. So, when, so over the years, I mean, you've, you've observed and, and, you know, you've, you've captured certain footprints. I mean, are there, are there standard consistencies amongst all the different sets of footprints that are, yes. that are caught? Yes. Okay. Right. That, that was one of the things I was, you know, when I, when I kind of undertook this, it was, if if your exposure is limited to a few newspaper clippings and a few, you know, this was in the age before internet, obviously, and all the YouTube videos and whatnot online, but um, you, you couldn't help but come away with the impression that that every track was every footprint was kind of unique, yeah. was kind of distinct and singular. <clears throat> well, when you get a large enough sample and you understand the underlying anatomy, there were some characteristics that started to emerged that showed even in tracks that you know to the untrained eye you might say um, ah these look completely different in fact uh, a, a famous researcher Rene de Hinden got hung up on this because he he um, for him the Patterson Gimlin fil film site tracks were the gold standard yeah and that individual had uh, a sole pad that extended fairly far up under the toes so when the toes were curled, you kind of had peas in the pod toe pads and, and apparently short stubby toes. Sorry, we, Whereas, we got some feedback that we're frozen, but you're not frozen. Yeah, okay. sorry. Oh, you're frozen? I'm frozen, but you're good. So okay. he's fixing it. You want me. me to keep talking? Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're good. We're, so we're good. Uh, he, he held back. that up as a gold standard. So when he, he investigated some of Paul Freeman's evidence where individuals in that region had uh, less webbing up under the toes. Uh, the toes had longer stems, visible stems. He referred to them as sausage toes no. and, and wrote them off as fake. Well, if you could, if you knew the correlates of the underlying skeletal anatomy, it was very clear that actually the toes were the same size, that, uh, that the uh, Patterson print has a little indentation yeah in the ball of and some and some tracks even show a crease running across well that crease is just like in the palm of your hand where the palm uh um, tissue extends further past the knuckle 
And so it throws up a flexion crease when that knuckle bends. Well, each and almost each and every one of us is born with a, such a flexion crease. If you look at your birth certificate, your little ink footprint, you'll notice there's a crease right across the ball of your foot. Yeah. And that only fills That's in as the connective tissue of the ball differentiates and elaborates and fills in that tissue. People that have flexible arches, like one of my boys, still has the crease right across his foot. It looks like a Bigfoot track. Only his foot's not that long. <laughs> so, so yes, to your, your question, there is, there is a common thread. There's a common morphology that's, that's present, but not absolutely glaringly obvious to the, the uninformed or un, un, uh, uncredentialed in, in foot morphology. Another thing that, that's very compelling to me about the footprints is one of the questions I asked is, if these creatures exist, they must be very rare. Right? Right. There can't be herds yeah, of them. Right. They're very rare. And so if footprints are found in a given area, given region over a period of time, the chances that those discovered footprints are from one of a very few individuals is very high. So we should see repeat appearances mm-hmm. of recognizable individuals. No one had demonstrated that. And so I started looking for evidence of that and boom, immediately started finding. I found examples, you know, it was asserted that Patty's footprints were, uh, were rather unique, had never been seen before or, or after. Not true. Uh, you know, there's a half a dozen different instances. It's just that they don't look the same because she might be walking on a hard logging road in the dust versus the soft, compliant, wet sand of that sandbar. But um, the famous uh, 1958 Jerry Crew footprint that, that was emblazoned on the headlines, the newspaper front pages, um, that individual was also seen at Heim Palm in 64, 62 excuse me, 62, and cast by Roger Patterson at uh, Bluff Creek in, in 1963 or 64. There's some discrepancy on the, the date that's come up, so I always have to qualify that. <laughs> 64 is, is what, what he put in his book. But anyway, you know, the, we have examples of that one, I, which I think was the big alpha male in the area, Yeah. Um, that uh, as an adult, spanning probably a good 15, 20 years that... residency. Can can we talk a little bit of too about the um like just the evidence of of primates in the Americas in general? Sure. And and yeah, like people often, yeah. often bring up you know there's no well we there are there is a fossil record of primates that goes way back. You have to go back to the Eocene at a time when when the uh, the tropics tropical and climates extended all the way up into southern Canada, and there were little lemur like primates, prosimian primates, you know, that that precede the monkeys even, Um, and uh, in, in, in organization and in evolutionary history. Those went extinct as there was a a dramatic climate shift at the Eocene Oligocene boundary and, and um, the, the globe started cooling and drying and those tropics receded back down to where they are today. So they went extinct. But at that time, you know, all the way up into Alberta, Canada, there are fossils of these little lemur-like primates in the forests, in the tropical forests. Mm-hmm. There have never been, there's no, not a record of apes in mm-hmm. North America, however, ape, monkeys or apes. And so, um, you know, it, it, it is, if, if one then asks, well, where would 
a giant hairy ape come from? Well, yeah. it had to come across the Bering Land Bridge from Asia, mm. as did so many other mammals. That makes sense, yeah. People don't realize that 75% of the mammals that are common to North America actually arose, evolved in Asia and came across. Right. And came over. Right. And yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so first, I got to apologize to the viewers. Our video feed froze. Not sure you're, why. You're good. Dr. Meldrum's still on the, I don't know what the deal with our streaming setup is. There might be an issue. Um, I'm not going to mess with it now. The audio is still good. Yeah. Um, my question was, so are do you, do you know who Survivor Man is? Les Stroud. Have you ever heard oh, of him? Of yeah. <clears throat> so he he told a story once on a podcast, like literally years ago, from Alaska. He was in Alaska, and he was talking about um, this crazy like primal sound he heard at night. But my question was like, other than the video footage, what is like the most compelling? first-hand account that like you've heard of patterson Gimlin. but other yeah, yeah well, i mean uh when it, whenever i'm asked that the one that comes to mind and it's because of the opportunity to really get to know the witness yeah and, yeah and hear the story yeah um it's uh it, and I, i'm not sure i don't think she minds her name but um but i'm having a senior moment anyway so We'll leave it anonymous. Her name will pop back into my head here in, in, in any second. But, um, but there is like a, there is uh, someone. Yes. Like so, so this woman um, was uh, 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 quite the outdoors woman and, a, and an amateur naturalist. Uh, she uh, she's very was a very credible woman. She uh, worked in a um, in a law firm. And um, she had put herself through law school in um, by uh, teaching music. She was a musician. Oh wow! And uh, so she uh, taught music lessons. She performed. She she did storytelling and so forth. And realized after ten years or so in, in this law firm that that uh, this wasn't the life she really wanted. Oh nice! She was able to make a living doing what she really loved and being where she really liked to be. She, uh, I mean, just to show you how, uh, so what a stalwart outdoors woman she was, she hiked the entire Continental Divide Trail. Oh, through, she's a through, oh, uh, nice. Colorado solo, mm -hmm. just oh, with a couple wow. of goats, uh, pack goats along. She was a pack goater and, um, and, uh, or a goat packer. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there's a <laughs> correct term for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In any case, on one of her trips, she had a couple goats and she had a couple dogs along with her. She uh, said even on that remote trail, she was bumping into more people than she really wanted to at that particular time. So she decided to take a break and go off trail. Uh, she, she noticed on her map some off trail lakes and nice meadow area. And so she hiked several miles off trail to that spot. Along the way, the dogs kept reacting to something in the in the trees and uh you know bristling and so forth the goats are very also very attentive you know it's like uh, uh llamas goats they make great watchdogs yeah if, if they hear something or smell something they just they zero in on it you can just watch their eyes well she got in she set up her camp uh she had the goats unpacked and everything and 
was feeding them and and uh, the dogs were kept barking off at the well she thought a bear maybe had been shadowing her um i mean this is uh, in an area mm-hmm. of uh, southern colorado where they they still have the ghost grizzlies the mysterious grizzlies that are supposedly extinct but keep on showing up again <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've heard about those too. as well as black bear yeah and so she didn't want the dogs to tangle she pulls them into the tent she grabs a can of uh, pepper spray and steps out expecting maybe to confront a bear because as she as she went to step out she saw that the goats had crowded up right to the entrance of the of the tent and so she steps out turns around standing right behind her tent was an eight and a half foot tall bigfoot in the afternoon you know broad daylight wow and uh she just froze and it was looking at her and she was looking at it she said it would glance every now and then down at the goats like it thought these looked odd wasn't familiar with them but she said she, she even commented that there was a moment when she had this and what she didn't claim it was mind speak or parapsychological but just the impression of uh, that you get with any animal yeah. when their body posture changes yeah. and it's like I won't hurt you if you won't hurt me right and uh, she said it just kind of softened the edges and at that point a second one peeked out around from behind wait her. okay <laughs> well, wait smaller. okay let's let's recap this so this is a, a an ex-lawyer is hiking the Continental Divide Trail section through Colorado. Section through Colorado, solo with goats. <clears throat> do you know? Do you know? Like, when did this? When did this happen? Uh, let me think. And her name is Julie Davis. Okay. All right. Andy's googling her right now. <laughs> <laughs> she, her her story actually was featured. The the Denver Post let their environmental correspondent do a two page spread on Sasquatch in Colorado. And uh, he almost backed out, but uh, but the, the fellow pressed him a bit further and, and got it, and it it was it was summarily ignored. It was just ignored. That's one of the strategies. E- either you you vehemently criticize something that you want when you want to discredit it, or you just ignore it as if yeah. it doesn't even exist. That that's the tack most common around campus now. I mean I'm. I'm kind of uh, tolerated now much more than I was 10 years ago, but uh, now it's just, nah, we won't even, we won't even distinguish it, you know, give it distinction by acknowledging it basically. Um, you, you, that's something I want to get to later in this podcast, but this is, this is, this is a crazy story to me. Wait, and did she, did she come? Like, how did you find out about this? This was obviously she, in the news. She's good friends with a, a colleague of mine because of her goat packing. Okay. Uh, she is good friends with a, a, a person I work with in the field, John Mianzinski, who essentially invented goat packing, or at least standardized it, commercial goat packing in the United States. So they were good friends and well acquainted and had been on lots of trips with clients together and so forth. And so he introduced me to her when we decided to do some work down in, in Colorado to look into okay. some of the reports down there. <laughs> So this was two so, two thousand three, I think Andy pulled it because I was like, because right. okay. I was like, we got smartphones, people, take a picture. Yeah, but this was before that, so I was like, Damn. the article was written by by Teo Stein. Okay, Teo Stein, and it was, I mean, a fantastic two page spread which featured her experience 
at first she was going to remain anonymous and they were going to change up the details just enough so that she wouldn't be recognizable. But then the Wallace story broke. Ray Wallace and, and his death and the claims by his family that they had used carved wooden feet to fake all these footprints. Yeah, yeah. That broke, and that created such a, uh, you know, a brouhaha that Julie said, hey, go back and rewrite the story and put my name in it. I'm going, I'm oh. going to stand for my story because this was not a fake. <clears throat> I saw them. I know they exist. They're real, and uh, people need to know that. So, so sh- her story ran. So was, and, uh, was there any... So like I said, I've, I've heard her tell it, you know, in, in her front room and uh, across a campfire and <laughs> been able to ask her questions about it and... Uh, her, you can see the physical change, that, the the physical impact that it, the experience had on her at the time, r- as she relives it. Wow, telling it, and uh, you know, it's one thing to sit in your armchair and poo-poo an eyewitness, and and I, I you have to take yeah testimony with a huge grain of salt. But when you come to know the person, you know their skills their knowledge ability, you know, uh, they're, they're very knowledgeable of, uh, natural history and so forth. Uh, it puts it in a whole different category. Did, did anybody ever go up to that spot and try to locate tracks or anything? No, it was extremely remote and, and, uh, uh, it would be, you know, kind of difficult. It's hard to find tracks. You know, I, I, I always press witnesses myself with that kind of question, but it, but while also, acknowledging either verbally or implicitly there's a lot of terrain out there that just will not take a footprint especially not the footprint of a of a soft padded uh, yeah. foot without without hooves or claws to uh, make uh, imprints so um no she hasn't it she has sat down with a sketch artist yeah i, I saw some Andy was pulling that up yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Pete Travers has quite a project, and you might be able to find him online, uh, where he has done sketches of a lot of different eyewitness descriptions. They're, so they're interesting to see. It looks like Chewbacca a little bit. Uh, it does a little bit. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's just it. You have to, uh, you always have to take sketch artists' work with a grain of salt, yeah. too, because they tend to incorporate some of their own stylistic expression yeah so uh, one thing with pete you know i i i, I kind of uh uh I, I don't know if i've ever criticized him to his face but i've but i've mentally criticized some of his his sketches or drawings they often look kind of blockish and rather short hind legs or lower legs or legs versus upper extremity yeah till i saw a picture he drew with a Sasquatch standing next to a person and the person was kind of blockish. Unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> short. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It was just the way he drew. That's pretty funny. But in your eyes, this, this is like a good, like this is an eyewitness account that like you think is really legit based on oh, what, what well, you know. I mean, it's, it's above reproach in, in my, she's above reproach. Yeah. And then you've got, so you have that combined with excellent circumstances of observation. You know, for a lot of people, their their glimpse is extremely fleeting, and it's just it's just a flash of fur. 
And, uh, and so that's why it sometimes is easy to overinterpret. You know, I, I was out with a group one time and we uh, flushed a black bear. Right. It went mm -hmm. galloping away. But, you, but most of us only caught just a glimpse of it. And if you wanted to have a Bigfoot experience, that would have been the seed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A flash of black fur just yeah. disappearing in the brush and the bushes wagging in, in, uh, at its passing. But she saw it in broad daylight, literally a distance of about 15 feet. You can imagine yeah. 15 feet looking up into the eyes of an eight and a half foot tall Sasquatch. I couldn't imagine. How, uh, <laughs> how, how intelligent, let's say, you know, let's say they're there, they're out there. Like how intelligent do you think they are based on what you know of like your anthropo anthropological facts of hominids and what you think they're like? How intelligent do you think they are? Well, I think the evidence is in the lack of material culture they have no there is there is no archaeological you know you talk about fossil record of primates in north america right. there's no archaeological record of a primitive hominin in in um, north america there's no stone artifacts other than those of the clovis people and you know pre-clovis and so forth i mean though all homo sapiens so there's that there's you know, there's nothing, no evidence of fire. There's no evidence of, of home bases yeah. other than nests, <clears throat> equivalent to what we see other primates, other great apes make. Um, you know, there's questionable evidence of, of language. Um, uh, and I emphasize the, the questionable, debatable evidence of language. Um, there's, uh, what else? You know everything about them. It, it just their their size. Their I mean their 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 the depth and and uh, massiveness of their jaws. I mean it all suggests an adaptation that is not dependent on stone or wood tools, but rather on brute strength, basically. So and like not chewing strength. Not super intelligent. Is that what you're no, trying to say? I, I would put them on par with the, the great eight okay. or early hominins. You know, the early, the, the early hominins like the australopithecines okay. or the, the paranthropines, the robust forms um, that also show a lack. Although now we some some archaeological evidence has attributed simple flake tools, cutting flakes to um, australopithecines even as early as that they could knock off a sharp flake and use it to shave open uh, or cut open a hide or shave off a tendon or uh, tissue from bone say um, and they had brains that were barely bigger than chimps or gorillas maybe maybe 10 percent bigger 50 cc's bigger and uh you know it's like uh, I, I jokingly sometimes make the point. I, I show a picture of a depiction of a Cro-Magnon with all his 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 gear, his kit, you know, stone knife, and they've even give, prematurely given him a bow and arrow in this particular um, uh, uh, painting. But then I put up a picture of Patty from the Patterson Gimlin film, and there's nothing. Yeah. It's like like George Carlin's uh, <clears throat> shtick, uh, you know. Where's the stuff? <laughs> our stuff. When we go on a trip, we pick our most necessary, favorite stuff, and we take it with us, and we unpack it. And then, if we go off for a to the beach, we have to subdivide our stuff. And 
you know, we, we just can't get around without surrounding yeah. ourselves with stuff. What, um, <clears throat> what is, and this might be something that is discussed in your book, what is the range? Like, do we have these in the Midwest potentially? Like what, what is the geographical range? Well, if you watch some of the documentaries, they would have you believe that they appeared in every state. Yes, yes that's yeah. why I asked this. And we have a yeah. we have a yeah. we have an Ohio Bigfoot group too that's pr- yeah. watching. So, like, what in your expert opinion, you know, <clears throat> it's out there, it exists. Like, yeah, right. what's the ge- what's the ge- geographical range? Well, my my rule of thumb, and I think it, it holds, um, and it's and it has basis also or corroboration in a in uh, an interesting published paper. Um, let, let me give the backstory of the paper real quickly. A, a friend of mine who is, uh, uh, he's a, a GIS technician, geographic okay. information systems. And uh, together with a couple of his colleagues, he, he's very into Sasquatch. He did his senior honors thesis on uh, a geospatial analysis of the distribution of Sasquatch reports in the Pacific Northwest over a 20 year period. Oh, wow. And demonstrated the influence of the growth of the Puget Sound metropolitan area. <clears throat> yeah. The distribution of reports. Got an A plus on it. Shared it. <laughs> <laughs> and he landed a you know, plum of a job at the Esri Center, and now he does private consulting work. But he and a couple co authors had written an editorial for a biogeography journal um, cautioning ag- about the misuse of um, uh, ecological modeling software packages mm. you know if, if you if you just treat them like a black box and you don't know what the algorithms are doing then you know for all you know it's garbage in garbage out you yeah. got to know what's going on yeah and so to demonstrate the potential pitfalls he and his co-authors said they undertook to test an ostensibly bogus data set and guess what it was? It was the data that he'd used. Oh, really? For his honors <laughs> thesis, basically. It was Bigfoot data. That's but what funny. came out was remarkably rational and coherent model of the bioclimatic factors that defined the Bigfoot range. And it aligned remarkably closely with that of Black Bear. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Which you might expect, another large omnivore. Yeah. You know, but they, in order to get the paper published, they had to kind of tongue in cheek say, well, obviously there's the explanation for Sasquatch that it's just misidentified just bears. Black, black bears. Yeah. Yeah. Black bears. That's well, it. I called him up and I said, Peter, what happened? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Did you uh, do an about face? And he goes, no, Jeff, you should recognize, you know, in the theme of our earlier conversation, you should recognize more than anyone that. Had we even suggested um, the possibility that, that our data actually uh, indicated the existence of, of a Sasquatch, it would never have been published. Yeah. So we had to kind of couch it, Dumb it down. But, but my two co-authors who were very skeptical are, are now very intrigued. In fact, <laughs> the book. So my rule of thumb is pull up. Uh, and you can Google online, just look up uh, black bear distribution mm-hmm. in North America. There's a really great map. There's one actually that has the historical distribution yeah. and the current distribution, even down to uh, actual sightings in isolated areas. But if you look at the distribution of black bear, not just in the Northwest, but across North America, yeah. 
it aligns re remarkably well with credible, substantiated Sasquatch reports. You know, not in the middle, in the wheat fields of Kansas. Right, 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 right. Desert, you know, not in Central Park, New York City, in Manhattan, you know. But New Jersey. But hey, hey, those are, hey, Buckeye Bigfoot hunters, <laughs> you, he's telling That's you right. oh, there's, yeah. there's a chance. Yeah. Down the backside of the Appalachia, yeah. down across the Great Lakes and the backside of the Appalachia, all the way down, it kind of button hooks up into the deep south, up to the four corners yeah. area, yeah. Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. There's even, uh, you know, there's even been a few um, bear sightings. I was just talking to a friend in Nebraska. Oh, wow. They got them there? Well, yeah. Well, there's very few black bear. There's yeah. just a whole, most of them are on the very eastern side in the in the riverine forested areas on the east part of the, the state, not out in the Great Plains, really. Although, and then you have to qualify that because with any species with a specific habitat uh, limitation, there's going to be um, uh, emigration. Yeah, moving yeah. The young adults in a uh, that grow up, the <laughs> dominant males going to push them out, right. especially young males. And they're going to have to strike out on their own. Dr. Krantz talked about this in his book, what he called rogue males. And he, he attributed what seem, you know, seemingly out of place sightings that didn't make a lot of sense as just transients who were looking for uh, their own stomping grounds or biding their time until they got, you know, buffed up enough that they could challenge a male and displace him and usurp some territory. Yeah. Uh, themselves as as a possible explanation so that's but again it kind of boils down a rule of thumb yeah i i tell people uh you know when, when they say oh yeah we see them here all the time i say well do you have black bear well no there haven't been black hair bear here for 100 years well if the habitat's that altered mm -hmm. and the, and the human growth and development is that extensive that black bears can't survive do you really think you know a community or a population of sasquatch can survive so um need, need to look you know don't just realize too that state boundaries are are artificial right right, right. right. And yeah so sometimes you know, like with nebraska you see just a little bit there in nebraska but if you look to the other side there could be a lot more habitat that just barely laps over that state line and so that increases the odds too so something um i wanted to ask as well and then once again, this could very well be discussed in the book, but is there evidence or do you think, and you, you kind of hinted to it, that they're social? I mean, I know apes are social animals, but like, are they communal? Are they social? Is that something right. like, what well, do you I'm, think I'm about that? Certain, we have some clues. Yeah. And the clues are that most sightings and most footprint finds are of solitary individuals or okay. what we interpret as a female with offspring in tow. Um, there, there are some exceptions to that, you know, like people say, well, what about the Ostman story, the Ostman incident? There was a male, but it was taken to be interpreted as an adult male and adult female and a juvenile male and female. Well, it's interesting though, but when, when Ostman was abducted, it was presumably just the male that kept visiting his camp repeatedly. So that male was not hanging out with that female and her offspring at the time that he was abducted and the time that that they left that little box canyon 
they usually left separately and they came back separately, often bringing different resources. You know, he talks about the female coming in one time carrying, um, I think she had the arm of sweet grass that they ate. And one of them came back with, you know, strips of bark one time. So they were coming back with different resources. So it may be that maybe they do coalesce. See, chimpanzees have a fission fusion. Yeah. Where when they're out dispersed foraging, they're more, they are more dispersed, but then they come back together for security and sleep together, sleep in the trees together. Uh, gorillas have a harem where the male mm-hmm. defends the females. Orangutans, what's interesting, the diversity, that no yeah, two apes yeah. have the same social Yeah, that's interesting. Even the bonobos are different than the common chimps. Uh, but the orangutans, the male, uh, defends a territory. He doesn't defend a harem. He defends a territory that overlaps the, ter- the, the home range. They don't defend territory, the home range of females with offspring. When the females are receptive, they seek out the biggest, baddest guy on the block, yeah. the male. And that's only about every you know five to seven years that they become receptive to... to uh, you know, dinner and dancing. Right? <laughs> uh, they have quite a birth interval. Um, what What is their birth interval? Like, what do you surmise that it is? Is it close well, to like it, an, a nine it, month? I mean, again, I'm, I'm, this isn't even a surmise. It's yeah. a total speculation. Right, right. right. Yeah, uh, fair. But the, but the potential parallels, I think, between orangutans and, and Bigfoot are, are, the, are the best. I think a male, dominant male, will, will defend a territory or, or, well, you can't even... It's been pointed out to me repeatedly by mammologists. You can't defend a thousand square miles. Right. That kind of seems to be what they're... All you can do is advertise your presence. Well, how do Sasquatch vocalize? Isn't it interesting that one of the most commonly reported vocalization is this long, loud, piercing scream? That's what characterizes the orangutan is their loud call where the male broadcasts his presence. And he has these interesting air sacs to uh, augment that the big dewlap you see under the the, yeah. the the ring that's a big air sac from the a diverticulum from the larynx they even have them down underneath the uh, skin of the chest even under the pec muscle it's like a bagpipe you can they can squeeze on that i mean not only does it provide resonation mm-hmm. but they can squeeze on that and it can force more air either depending on where they join either above or below the vocal cords but even if it's above they can vocalize with the modulation of their pharynx even super laryngeal so is uh, is the sound is it a scream that sasquatch make yeah some some are some are high pitched wailing it's like a banshee cry we others are the hoop the hooting sound the whoop so not uh, not that I think this is a Sasquatch, but Andy and I, we've talked about this on this podcast many times, but there's a part of Southern Ohio that, you know, butts up against Appalachia yeah. and we hear these sounds. I don't know what they are, but they're like banshee screaming sounds. Uh, it's an area, of, it's an area of Wayne National Forest. Um, and we just hear these sounds all the time. And I don't know, we don't know. We have literally on this podcast live played like every animal sound we can think of and we haven't found what it is <laughs> i don't know i obviously not saying yeah. it's a sasquatch but like but if, if that's the sound it would make is some sort of like guttural screaming sound probably yeah that's terrifying yeah 
and it may uh, it may include uh, infrasonic elements, and that's another idea mm, about the, the resonating chambers. It helps with the production of infrasound, like uh, you know, like the drone on a bike. That yeah, kind. right. Is and, there uh, is there any any evidence or anything whatsoever that suggests that these things, you know, would potentially be hostile towards us? You know, I used to always answer that immediately, say and say, "Oh no, you know, it's really not." And give. And well, give I wanted you. I wanted you to say that. Well, <laughs> you know, the uh, it's like when um, it, 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 I, most of the accounts are uh, involve bluff, bluffing behavior. Yeah, interesting. Like a bear. Like a bear. Akin to you know what uh, Diane Fossey described the first time a silverback uh, bluff charged. Yeah. Him. Yeah. And. Um, but having said that, the Native American traditions are uh, rife with examples of cannibal giants. Cannibal because they eat people, not mm -hmm. because they eat each other, because they eat, eat people and children. The, uh, the eater of children is one of the names, uh, even here locally. Um, and there are stories of children being snatched. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, oh, that's terrifying. Stories, I mean, that, uh, it's in the book. You got. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. This has been like one nine days in the making. I didn't have time to take out a book. Andy <laughs> did. I was like, I was like, at least one of us yeah. consumed the book. Um, so this is what's really fascinating is I was as I was writing that part of the book, mm -hmm. one of my uh, uh, friends, uh, good, good friend, acquaintance, um, uh, was uh, in the Peace Corps. Uh, Owen Caddy was his name. He was in the Peace Corps and in Africa, and he, and he stayed on to, and worked uh, with uh, the uh, uh, game warden, the game warden service there at one of the national parks. They had an incident uh, outside the park where a woman had parked her infant in the shade of the, of the bushes there while she was just a few steps off hoeing in the field. And uh, well, maybe a little more than a few steps, because along comes a chimpanzee uh, oh. and snatched up the baby and yeah. made off with it. Before they could retrieve it, it had been dispatched and partially consumed by. So that behavior chimpanzee. exists in the primate yes. spectrum. Okay, right. exactly. Okay. And so, and and what was even more than compelling was, I mean, this was just an, a, an anecdote, but then some months later. There was actually a paper, uh, a news item published, and I don't think it was a paper written on it, but I think it's been discussed since. But in the news item, they acknowledged that over a seven-month period, there were a dozen cases of, of toddlers or infants snatched by chimpanzees. It was severe drought conditions, mm. and the chimps were getting food where they could find it, and an unattended little little child. So suddenly, these Native American stories, yeah. you know, Zonacqua, the, the, the whole story of the Tsonaqua, the, the one with the pursed lips that has a whistling, wailing call. She has these big hands, which she puts uh, pine pitch on because she snatches up the children and throws them into a wicker basket on her back and takes them home for dinner as the main course. But she's very dull-witted. And so in, in the depiction, you know, she does this and she makes this whoop, whoop sound. But, but because she's... Uh, a little little uh, slow, she falls asleep. And while she's asleep, the children make their escape. And they usually get home safely. But it's, you know, you don't make noise. Or, I see. 
Uh, it's a, it's used as a boogeyman story. Mm-hmm. But the point is, a just so boogeyman story may have its roots in real. Yeah. Is there yeah. a yeah. next question? I'm sure, this is discussed in the book. Is there a lot? Is there a lot of Native American? It's in the book. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what? So so the Native Americans talk about this sort of thing, and like there, there's like a decent amount of Native American evidence of it existing as mu- as far as Native American evidence can go. Oh yes, very much so. It's been problematic to collate it because they're kind of uh, tight-lipped, close to the vest on. Yeah. It. It's uh, you know they they uh, because as with all other animals, animal figures in their in their folklore, I won't say mythology, but their folklore. I mean, they they create stories, um, fables, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. Aesop's fables. They, they teach a, a story, teach a, a principle rather. But the um, the natural creatures are imbued with personalities, with different characteristics and traits that that distinguish them from one another, and and so it's no exception with the Sasquatch. So the, the spiritual and the, and the natural are, are not distinct, but they're blended together in a very seamless way, uh, which is not surprising. But they keep, they keep those things kind of to themselves. We've, uh, I've, I've had a few uh, periods of in, instruction on, on <laughs> how the white man's ways are, are viewed. You know, we, we mess <laughs> things up and then we want to study them and learn about them. <laughs> yes. So, um, so it's been challenging to get, I mean, there, there are very few efforts in the book. I was privileged <clears throat> by the generosity of, of Gail Highpine, who was a native author, native tribal author, who had collected a lot of stories across many different tribes and had brought them together. And they'd never been published really before there'd been, it was available, you know, as a, as a PDF online or something, but uh, she gave permission to reprint it in the book. And so it was really the first, the first uh, more um, synthetic yeah. treatment of the topic across cultural lines. Um, Kathy Strain has written an excellent book uh, about cannibals, giants, and, and Sasquatch in which she goes through and has just tons and tons and tons of stories. Yeah that all seem to kind of point back to this wild man of the woods figure. So it's there, definitely there. Sometimes it's really visible, like on totem poles. And yeah, masks. yeah. Other times, not so much. Sometimes in petroglyphs uh, or rock rock art paintings, like the famous uh, painting down in uh, of the Yokuts in uh, the Sierra Nevada mountains, California, that shows, depicts their creation story. And, and one of the central figures proponents of, of humanity in, in the story is the hairy man <laughs> and here he is right there and you know all uh, all his glory along with his wife and child too wow <laughs> that's um, why we we stand upright because we were created by the hairy man to look more like them than the other animals of the forest oh andy's googling if you're listening to this google all of this um there's some <laughs> I, there, no there's some great like images that come up to speak to what Dr. Meldrum's talking about. Yeah. Um, so one thing I, I wanted to talk about, and I got I, dibs on the next question. Okay, I'm gonna pull. <laughs> I'm gonna pull away from Sasquatch a little bit. 
So one thing I, I actually, I really admire you about and my experience in higher education is like, like you're bucking against the trend here and I'm sure you've taken some flack for the stance you've taken, but yeah. I've, I mean, you, you're tenured, so you've made it work, but like how, like how much crap have you had to take huh. from people because of this? And I, I'm, I, I admire you. I admire you for sticking and being true to yourself. And like, that's very cool to see, but I'm, I'm assuming you've taken so much shit from people and yeah. like, like how, how, how has that been? Well, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was naive, a bit naive, I guess, or, or more, more idealistic than naive. Um, and thought it, it was just a matter of if I did good science, uh, it would, that, that right. would speak for itself. Right, 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 right. And, and I, boy, was I mistaken. Yeah. yeah. That's a shame, uh, by the way. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. No, it was a very, you know, and, and, and I, I've tried my darndest not to become cynical. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid Dr. Krantz kind of. I became super it, cynical from this stuff, but. Yeah. When like, you, when you read his book, you know, he uh, referred to the scientific establishment and there is, um, but he, he was kind of sour grapes in the end and, and, uh, quite jaded. And I can, I can appreciate, I can, you know, as time went on, uh, and, uh, and things happened and, and not just me, but my students were persecuted as well. Oh man. Yeah. Nearly by association. They weren't yeah. even doing Sasquatch related projects or anything. Uh, because I mean, cause that's not all I do. I mean, that's not at all. It's become more, more and more of the focus is as I, as I reach, you know, the, the twilight of my career, I want to make sure I tie up and finish some yeah. projects. And so I'm, I am rather focused. Uh, but uh, it certainly was not, but but to have my students be harassed by other other graduate students or faculty, yeah, that's um, terrible. It 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 really, I mean, it got to the point where um, action was taken. Really? And, uh, oh yeah, some things came to a head, and some formal grievances were. Oh wow! I some formal grievances, and thankfully had a dean who was, uh, you know, was egalitarian and objective and. Uh, stepped in and took the bull by the horns and and you know cut through the the uh ridiculousness and uh <clears throat> and it, it you know put it laid it to rest but yeah my promotion I, you know i barely got tenure and because i again i was naive and yeah. jumped into the deep end before having that security and and my promotion to full professor was delayed because uh, the, the uh, chair at the time had actually said, verbalized, yeah, as long as he was chair, I would not be promoted to full professor. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. So we're going to get back to Bigfoot, but props to you, and that takes some balls for doing that. Um, I know bucking against the trend academically is tough to do, even though the whole point of academics is to be progressive and change the way you think based on research. But yeah. I do appreciate the fact that you stuck to your guns. Um I mean, that was just a side thing I wanted to ask you about, not big for related. So we can, we get back to Sasquatch. Sure. <laughs> sure. All right. <laughs> what I, I think like one of the biggest pieces of criticism that I've seen and is, is the lack of bones or the lack of, of, of bones that have been found. And, and you talked a little bit about it in your book. Um, but can you, can you kind of like uh, just kind of 
cover like how you address that in your book? Because I think it's really interesting for people listening mm-hmm. to hear that. Right. Well, there's there's two uh, aspects that that have to be considered. Um, the one we've kind of alluded to a little bit as we've talked about some of the behaviors and and qualities uh, of the natural history of Sasquatch, as as can be inferred from the clues that are available and by extrapolation and bracketing by the the anatomy and physiology of known great apes. So that that being that they're a large-bodied primate, they're at the top of their food chain, they probably have a, a long life right. span, lifespan. Um, you know, if if we look at the life expectancy of the other large-bodied great apes and humans, um, you know, we're we're talking about uh, 45 to 60 years. Yeah. You know, it's only been recently humans before, uh, only recently with with uh, good nutrition, reliable food, and and medication, our <laughs> lifespan has been extended. I yeah. mean, it wasn't too long when forty five years was a ripe old age, but uh, there's also a positive correlation of body mass and longevity. So as this creature is bigger, I wouldn't be surprised if they wouldn't hit fifty to sixty years, and even in the wild. Yeah. Uh, and um, under those conditions. So that's one side. Mm-hmm. Um, plus their, their rarity. Yeah. Wrapped in there, their rarity. And so, you know, a death, <clears throat> a death of an individual Sasquatch in a given area is a real rare event. Yeah. 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 You know, if we, because um, kind of bearing on that, the notion of rarity, again, I'm, I won't, I won't go through all the machinations of how I come to this. We've touched on some of the things, making comparisons to social structure, uh, home range yeah. size inferences, you know, and what habitat they seem to be correlated with. So take my state of Idaho. If you look at the bear distribution, the range, you and you look at where there's sufficiently productive habitat, and you look at, how, say, how many thousand square mile plots could you stick yeah. in that territory and of course you know just a ballpark would be about 12 to 15 let's just say 12 12 and it's going to vary with topography and with patchiness of the forest and habitat etc 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 you know even whether the mountain range faces east west or north and south is going to change the change the flora considerably Um, and then each of those plots a dominant male maybe two or three females and a couple offspring. Let's just say five. Again, keep the math simple. 12 times five, we can all do that, 60. So in all of Idaho, there's 60 Sasquatch. There's 35,000 black bear. Oh, wow. So you start comparing like that. We'll say, oh, well, yeah, but your numbers, ah, way too conservative. You know, okay, well, let's double it. There's 120 Sasquatch. Well, there's 240. There's still... You know, yeah. a thousand times more yeah. or a hundred times, a couple hundred times, kind of the rule of thumb ends up being about 200 black bear for every Sasquatch in a state. <clears throat> you know, and even in a, you go and when you go back east, you know, when you use that rule of thumb I talked about, about black bear, you also need to keep the numbers in mind, too. Yeah. So 35,000 in Idaho. There's about 30, 30,000 in um, in Washington state. Um, you know, about the same in Oregon and Northern California, British Columbia, 110,000 yeah. black bear. Oh, wow. 110,000 black bear. But see, that means, so if we, if we, you know, just take a zero off, there's, um, you know, 
there's more. There's a couple thousand uh, Sasquatch probably in there, but anyway, or a couple hundred. The other side of the of the of the conversation about bones has to do with the environment. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that is wet coniferous forest <clears throat> habitat. Um, and often, at least in the Pacific Northwest and Intermountain, um, uh, Idaho, basalt batholith, you know, uh, it's volcanic igneous rock, which tends to, all that tends to contribute to very acidic soils. So if the, if the gnars and chewers and, and uh, you know, the porcupines and the squirrels and even the deer, well, you know, calcium is at a premium and they'll, they'll chew on yeah. bones. Uh, if they have, if they don't make work short work of it, what's exposed to the elements and the soil quickly disappears. So you know there aren't many people. I was talking to someone on the phone today actually, and he he likes to look for sheds, and so he spends a lot of time off trail walking around, and he finds a lot of bones, and he has quite a little collection he wants to show me pictures of to identify. You don't find very many bones though out in the woods when you think of. Uh, you know, that, that's the number of, of bear. I don't even know what the number of, of uh, estimate for deer is in Idaho, but it's it's in the, you know, probably hundreds of thousands. Right, yeah, it's huge. And so how many deer carcasses do you ever find when you're out on a hike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Very little and, and not a whole, you know, unless you just happen upon, and it's usually a roadkill or, or someone is shot or left left uh, abandoned a, um, a wounded animal. Um, anyway, so... That's that's the the the, the issue. Um, bones are just precious few. So so go back to our example of Idaho. Of those, say 120 or 200 of those, let's just say 200 of those 200 Sasquatch in Idaho. How many of them are in their golden years? Yeah, yeah. On the verge of dying. So how frequently does a Sasquatch die? It's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, will someone yeah. hear it? <laughs> Or, yeah. or does it make a sound with no one to hear it will, will it make a sound if a sasquatch dies in idaho and there's no one to find the bones did it really die <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that point. point is yeah is you know what are the chances i mean it's a needle it's not it's even worse than a needle in a haystack yeah you know? yeah <clears throat> i mean like how often would you run into like a dead bear i was gonna say i'm, like, I'm trying to think of how many times We've seen bones out there. I mean, we've I've seen, seen a, bones. A deer. Sure. We've seen a deer. Moose before. Yep. Yeah. But that's about it. Yeah. It doesn't really happen. Yep. To the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. What, um, I just want to ask this. What, what other things, I mean, you kind of talked about it. I mean, you didn't talk about the specifics, but what other things are you into researching aside from Sasquatch? Yeah. Well, like I said, things have tended to kind of, zero in now well, yeah. my research has has involved <clears throat> basically even evolutionary morphology or functional morphology yeah. in the broadest sense so you know i've had students that have looked at um and and, and more specifically hominin bipedalism okay so <clears throat> my uh my forte really was um you know working with the fossil remains of uh of hominin uh, species, but also to they're a precious commodity. Mm -hmm. So you have sometimes you have to come in the back door, the side door. And so my my dissertation, for example, I didn't work directly <clears throat> with hominin fossils, but I decided to look at uh, terrestrial cercopithecine monkeys. You know the baboon macaque family of monkeys. So my dissertation title was 
terrestrial adaptations in the feed of African circumpithecines with implications for the interpretation of hominin bipedalism. Oh, nice. <laughs> I understand so, most of those words. I did not understand that. So basically <laughs> what I was doing was looking at four legs. They're four, you know, quadrupedal, four-footed. We still call it footed even though monkeys have hands. Yeah. Four-footed monkeys that walked on the ground looking at their feet, comparing it with bipedal primates, uh, humans, namely, and and then what were the common features that could be explained as responsible or as a, uh, caused by walking on the ground mm-hmm. versus a narrow centrally placed substrate? And what was left then were the distinctions for walking on the ground on two feet instead of four. Oh, okay. And so it really highlighted the human adaptation, the arched foot etc you know the lack of divergence of the of the big toe and so yeah. on. so you know i've done i've done that kind of stuff my in my during my postdoc i you know since i was the foot guy you're at north yeah. you were at northwestern i i read your cv i was at what well, yes at one time i was at north but i did my doctoral in at stony brook suny stony brook and then i did a postdoc at duke that's right while, while i was in uh, while i was working on my doctorate my professor came back from south america and he said, hold out your hand. And I held out my hand and he dropped a handful of, of ankle bones, monkey ankle bones in my hand. He said, you're the foot guy. Tell me what. <laughs> so I, I went from African to South American. So I became an expert on the ankle bones of South American monkeys. I could group, you could hand me a, a monkey bo- a ankle bone. You still can from South America, and I can tell you which group it came <laughs> nice. from. Literally, there's differences. <laughs> and, and they're correlated with their locomotion. Yeah, right, right, right. So I could then extrapolate what these fossil forms were doing, even if we couldn't identify the actual species quite yet. But, but with a little sleuthing, we were able to associate. So so I had a whole, a whole uh, um, exposure to South American primates. When I postdoced at, uh, at Duke, uh, I realized when I first started my doctoral work, I was more, more interested in in the living models yeah. rather than the fossil. But I, as I soon realized, you you can't separate the two. I mean, it's 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 the form function phylogeny triangle, and and the evolutionary history has a huge impact on the expression of mechanical responses of the body to different. Uh, to different uh, selection pressures. Anyway, I realized if I really wanted to have any role in paleontology, you had to know something about teeth too, because it was teeth that that helped you to identify. So totally new to me, I jumped in the deep end and and it was fortunate because the person, my mentor as a postdoc was the leading expert on teeth. Oh, really? And so I spent hours and hours at a stereoscopic microscope with a, a drawing tube sketching the teeth of, of New World monkeys because then I went with his team down and we prospected for, for uh, monkey fossils in South America. So I had a big hand in South American uh, New World monkey evolution. But I've had students here. Then when I went to Northwestern, well, actually before I went to Northwestern, while I was there, my mentor came back and, you know, trying to sort out the New World monkeys evolved so rapidly in South America. When you have very rapid radiation, 
very short span of shared branches on the tree, there aren't a lot of characteristics that help you distinguish yeah. which are the nearest neighbors because they have shared so little time in common. And so creating uh, or recreating their evolutionary relationships was quite challenging based on, on the uh, uh, fossil evidence alone and, so, and, and, the, and the morphology. So this was the age of uh, where DNA was going to answer everything. <laughs> so he said, how would you like to learn to sequence DNA? <laughs> I go, I, you know, I, I kept, kept switching hats. You know, I just yeah. switched the skeletal hat to the dental hat. And now he wants <laughs> DNA, but how, how could I say no? It's a great opportunity. So I got farmed out to another lab and shackled to a bench. So you did a bunch of agarose gels, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Doing DNA extractions and sequencing. And so when I went to Northwestern, that, I set up my lab to, to continue that. I was originally going to, uh, uh, or, or I was, I did. I, the two and a half years I was there, we, we were doing DNA sequencing. When I came here to ISU, I set up my lab that way. But um, it was harder. I mean, the teaching ratio to research here, Yeah, it, I, I like it. But at Northwestern, you know, I basically taught one course. Right. And that was team taught, you know. So I had all day, all year to, to conduct research, basically. And here I was uh, suddenly uh, the South American monkeys became the sexy thing to do. <laughs> and all these big, big high-powered labs with lots of postdocs and lots of graduate students and lots of funding were jumping on, on board and they became, you know, sequencing mills i couldn't keep up um that's that's great i've done i've done some of that stuff so i know covid might have sidetracked you for this year but i know normally you're you're going out into the bush yeah for like right. a, a long still... durations are you, are you planning on doing that this year well it, it will depend um and, and if i do I'm, I'm a little different strategy yeah um there are still travel restrictions, and if we if we do travel, we have to uh, quarantine when we get back, and so mm. you know, yada yada. It's kind of made it problematic. But um, my my next push, and I've and I've talked about this elsewhere. It got uh, the wind uh, was taken from the sails by COVID, but and so it's been delayed. But um, did you did you happen to catch the news? about uh, the study of Loch Ness recently? No, were, no, but I saw you were talking yeah, about this. I, yeah, I saw yeah. that. I, I was no, infor well. inform us. Well, there was an international team that did a biodiversity survey of the waters of Loch Ness by sampling waters at various levels. And of course, when, when they do this, they concentrate, they run a lot of water through these filtering systems and gather up the trace DNA that's there that's shed by the organisms that live in the water and live next to the water that pee in the water and yeah. you know, whatever <laughs> poop in the water <laughs> and uh, um, their uh, their final conclusion was that there was an unusual eel really and, yeah and that the Loch Ness monster may be explained by an unrecognized uh, giant eel freshwater eel this literally so, I saw leads this. into my next question of, in terms of cryptozoology, like what else, what else is at least somewhat legit? So maybe the Loch Ness monster. Anything? Anything else? 
well, it's just not a, it's not a, not a plesiosaur is all, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but so, so the, it's the an eel. That's not as sexy. That's not as sexy. The point of this story is that one of that professor, the lead professor, Dr. Gimmel, who, who's from New Zealand, one of his students um, is doing a postdoc at UC Davis in genetics. And he was up at Yellowstone and visiting and uh, uh, the park there. And, and he was a big fan of the work I've done on Sasquatch. And so he, before returning to Davis, he uh, phoned me up and said, hey, I'm in the neighborhood. You know, Yellowstone's just a couple hours north of me. Could I pop in for a visit? Well, the, and I, I said, yes, because I, I, was, I had these concerns about the, the roadblocks to genetics study, DNA yeah. analysis of Sasquatch samples. Um, we, I, I felt that <clears throat> we weren't sampling extensively enough, or weren't sequencing extensively enough in order to find those few markers that would distinguish us. I mean, if we're talking about a, a hominin that may only differ by 1% of its DNA, um, you know, the example I've used to help illustrate this, imagine you had an advent calendar. But instead of 24 day, 24 little windows, little doors, there was, you know, thousands of them. Yeah. And you want, and, and behind one of those doors is the marker that distinguishes Sasquatch from, from human in, in that sample. But your study, your funding at the time only allows you to open 10 doors of the thousand. So what are the odds that you're going to find that one marker? And if you don't, what conclusion did you arrive at? Well, everything you witnessed is exactly like human. Yeah. So, so it's either contamination or it's misidentified human sample. Well, the third possibility is you haven't tested enough to draw any reliable conclusion. And I, I presented this to this uh, student and he, he, um, Tom was his name. And I, and Tom said, you're absolutely right. If it were me, we would sequence the entire mitochondrial genome, which is circular. We would also sample at least a dozen, maybe two nuclear genes before we could even say anything about the prospects of it being um, human or, or, or distinctly human. So that's, that's one of the problems that we're, we're up against. So anyway, so we had this conversation and he said, and I also told him, I said, you know, I, I've reached out to numerous labs uh, good quality labs that are doing work on grade ape uh, uh, taxonomy using DNA, you know, collected from yeah. nest sites or from scat and so forth. And I, but uh, invariably they come back and say, well, you know, it sounds fascinating, but no, we can't do it. And the reason is because they, they can't afford uh, to just be distracted with a project that's controversial like this it'll it'll uh, potentially uh, taint their credibility and but you know it's publisher parish these co yeah. competition for funding is is immense and so you have to be producing so if they didn't get a publication out of that it's wasted time and right. effort and may cost a graduate student their <clears throat> thesis and blah 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 you know and so he said well you should talk to my mentor this tom says he said, it's Tom Gimmel or Neil Gimmel. <laughs> and I, I didn't recognize the name right off. You bet the guy who did the DNA, eDNA study of Loch Ness. Like, oh, this is perfect. What a hook, too, for yeah. fundraising. Yeah. The guy yeah. who found 
Log Ness is now going to look for Sasquatch. You know? That's true. And uh, so he put me in contact with him, and Neil and I have uh, corresponded, and Neil is excited. I'm excited. We just got to get the funding now, and we've got to get the uh, get past COVID. Yeah. So we can travel. You're getting close. Yeah. I was, I was just, I mean, I was curious, like, I mean, when you go, like you go out in the woods for a while, like what is, what are these like expeditions kind of look like? Like you're just out there looking for tracks. Like, what are you, what are you looking for? Well, it, it varies. It varies under the circumstances and, and, and our wherewithal and, and where, where exactly we're working. Um, because you, you've got to be, you, you've got to kind of cast your net broadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like one, it's like one of the guys I worked with, you know, he, um, he was a, a project manager for a big firm. And, uh, you know, if they had a new facility, he would get the funding lined up. He would get the materials lined up. He'd get the personnel lined up, the plan, and then you get it done. And that's, he was used to that. Yeah. He was good at that. So when he turned his attention to Bigfoot, you know, he had the funds. He, uh, he contacted me, you know, to be part of the personnel and help with the planning. He had some people working with him. He had all the, all the bells and whistles. And uh, he, his intent was, we're going to go out there on a weekend and get it done. A weekend. <laughs> oh, a weekend. That's, yeah. Yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> we're to stay for, for, for very long. But uh, one time we were going up to a site. We picked out a site. He said, pick a site out in Idaho. And uh, so I uh, had not had much, spent much time in central Idaho doing this. So we picked a spot. Unfortunately, the fires were, we had to evacuate because of the fires. Yeah. Yeah. That particular year. Um, But as he picked me up, I didn't take a vehicle that time. We were kind of conserving on vehicles. It was, so it was going to be a quick and dirty trip in and uh, two or three weeks in and get out. But anyway, uh, he turns to me and he says, so Jeff, what are our chances? <laughs> I said, well, hey, let's stop at the Circle K of the uh, the go the shop, shop and go or whatever and buy a couple lotto tickets and I'll tell you. <laughs> I said, you know, we you, you've got to recognize it. He didn't quite get this. This is different than one of your projects. We can have all <laughs> these, everything lined up. We can be, be absolutely prepared. All our equipment can work perfectly, which hardly ever happens. <laughs> Batteries will stay charged, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and if there's not a Sasquatch in that drainage that we've decided we've chosen for very good reasons, you know, probably, hopefully if, if the Sasquatch happens to be in the next drainage over, he might as well be on the far side of the moon. We'll never see him. Right. We'll never bump into him. Right. Right. So that's the challenge of doing field work like this. Yeah. Is that, so, you know, we, we've used the, 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 the old, uh, standbys we've deployed camera traps. We've, tried deploying hair snags we've used odorants i had uh, you know for i think it was the ohio one of the ohio zoos um i had a director of a zoo who was very intrigued by my request and uh, had one of their keepers collect female orangutan urine Ah. Ah. and we used that on one uh, occasion um you know, but uh, boy, it's it's a challenge. Uh, n- nothing. Well, we I, I shouldn't say nothing. I have found footprints on a half a dozen occasions. We've heard vocalizations on a couple of occasions. I've had my camp visited, my backpack rifled, and food stores taken. Uh, really? Yeah. Backpack 
clasps undone and opened and contents, you know, uh, ditty bags pulled, you know, stuff bags pulled open and search of food and no claw marks, no teeth marks. I've had something run by my tent and drag its hand on the- <laughs> That was in the book. That scared um, the shit out of me. That was in the book. So those, I had, had some experiences like that. I may have caught a glimpse. You know, it was in association with someone that is very controversial. And so that immediately taints the yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. I was looking through a night vision monocular, which is not ideal because right. you have, uh, you know, no depth of yeah. vision. And uh, it was very dark night. It didn't have an IR illuminator associated with it. You know, just the, the ambient light of the campfire and uh, something broke. Well, we, we'd heard something, the vocalization. And then something stomping around the camp, breaking brush as it went, it sounded like a bull elk, you know, it was mm -hmm. big. And then, and breaking branches, you know, not just stepping on twigs, but yeah. the branches. And then it broke from the shadows inside of my night vision and went across the, the road to the other side. And uh, just a fleeting glimpse. Didn't find, they found, they found uh, a trackway where there was broken brush and compressed grass and so forth, but the ground was too hard and the roadbed was too hard to pick up any footprints to substantiate it. But we had seen footprints, I would say, we had seen 13, 13 and a half inch footprints in the moss. I mean, the whole forest floor is like a green carpet. Right, right. With moss, it's like a you know, three inch memory foam. And uh, if you're heavy enough, and that's just it, our footprints would eventually rebound. Yeah. We're compressed completely down to the ground and uh, bigger, bigger than any of our boots. That's crazy. I, I feel like you just glossed over all the personal anecdotes of you <laughs> out there in the woods. <laughs> yeah, um, some interesting experiences. Do you have any other? We kind of ignored the uh, audience. Well, 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 truthfully, I was looking. I was looking through the uh, through the chat and all the questions, the legitimate questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the legitimate questions were actually being answered quite well, actually. Um, yeah. All I'm all I'm gonna say is if you if you need some extra hands yeah. next time you're you need out like there. somebody to like mind camp and make eggs in the morning and we can we can video document the whole thing. <laughs> you, we're your we're your guys, um, but sure. sir, I uh, I uh, I do want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to us. This was really fun. Yeah, and um, and giving up your Friday evening for yeah, us. Yeah, I too. appreciate that. I'm gonna ask you to stay on the line. I'm gonna end the stream. Um, Thank everybody for watching. Yeah, and sorry about the the technology issues. We got guys. that fixed. I don't know what that was, but they're fixed now. Um, check well, there out. Was no interruption in your image to me. So yeah, and, and you came have, you came across fine the whole time. Yeah, um, well, please. That your broadcast was uninterrupted too. And, and please. Yeah, we're under attack. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, think about that. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, Please check out. We have links um, to his book down. If you want to know more about the science behind this, please, I, please check I, it out. I checked out the book and it was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, we're going to ask you to stay on the line, but everyone else, we yeah. will see everybody later on the next BSing. Yeah, and thanks for joining us thanks in the chat. Thanks for joining us. We'll see everybody later.